Well, hello. My name is Matt Troop, and I serve as CEO of Conway Regional Health System. And welcome to this edition of our One Team, One Promise podcast. Today is going to be a little different. We are going to talk uh, about COVID. We're going to continue our conversation about COVID, but we're turning the tables a little bit. Ms. Rebecca Fincher is going to guide the discussion. So I'm very uncomfortable right now, but uh, she's going to ask questions and I'm going to answer and uh, we're going to uh, have a nice conversation amongst some of our colleagues here. We have uh, Jeremy Hinojosa from our fitness center. Um, we have Billy Henry, who oversees our physician enterprise. Brian Gibbs, who basically runs the hospital. Uh, Brian Gibbs, VP of support services. And uh, Julia Chambers, who uh, is a nurse practitioner who played a key role um, in our um, drive-through and, and uh, telehealth. Let me set the stage for today's discussion, which is really about uh, innovation and, and our response and some of the, the background to that. You know, when I think about this topic, I go back really to my first days at Conway Regional, and there are other podcasts that talk a little bit about this. Some of our earliest podcasts talk about the environment. Uh, certainly, I, as a leader, walked into uh, when, I, when I came to Conway Regional. Uh, we were facing some pretty significant challenges, uh, challenges that really affected uh, our entire organization, our future, and we had a decision to make. And do we respond the way your typical average hospital responds? Um, for those of you wondering, there is a playbook in, in healthcare administration. I say that really metaphorically, but there, there is a way to respond to certain challenges and events. And uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is that the way we responded back then, five plus years ago, was very different than I think anyone ever imagined. And the result that we got was better and more significant than anyone ever imagined. And it was horribly terrifying at the time to be a leader in that position and uh, walk really by faith through uh, a time in our organization's history, which was very, very scary. And so, um, if you fast forward really through that, and let me just touch upon this real quickly. For those that may not know, the challenge I'm talking about is another hospital coming to town, uh, potential loss of revenue upwards of 30 to 40 percent. Um, there was some real science and study of that number, so I don't say that flippantly. That is a, a real number. Um, which could have resulted in the layoff of, of potentially hundreds of people. Uh, it very likely meant uh, loss of capital, available resources for us to invest in our hospital. So it was a really huge, significant threat. It is interesting to, to fast forward now, almost five years with COVID, uh, that threat of volume loss didn't come true. Um, obviously, we overcame that and told a great story um, from that. But the, the volume and revenue loss um, that we anticipated or feared back five years ago came true really in March and April of, of this year, when we lost literally overnight 45% of our, of our volume and, and revenue. And so I found myself in a very interesting spot of, of wow, uh, here we go again. There is a playbook uh, when you face uh, COVID and when you face a potential drop of revenue to the significance that, that we were. And if you want to know what that playbook is, just go Google uh, hospitals and COVID, go look at uh, job losses um, in the months of March and April, as reported by the US Department of Labor. And you'll see that really for the first time in, in nearly you know, 10 years, 
there was significant job loss. Healthcare is traditionally a, a market a segment of our economy that does well, that always adds jobs. And for the first time, really, in history, we saw consecutive months of job decline. So there is a playbook. And here I was, as a leader, faced with the same dilemma. Do we respond according to the playbook? Uh, or do we do something bold and different? And I think what we want to talk about today is really that bold and that, that different. Uh, I can tell you I was just as terrified <laughs> uh, March 9th, or uh, I think it was 9th, when we had our first case here in Arkansas, uh, as I was when I first walked into the hospital and first accepted the role uh, that I'm currently in. But as uh, God and fate so often do, you know, we came out of this and are telling a really fantastic story that upon reflection, you can only say, but God, you know, but uh, really a, a providence that goes beyond my ability to, to describe. But by putting our faith to work, um, you can see what, what happens as a result. So with that, I'm going to, I'm going to, turn it over. I'm just going to sit back and do nothing, I guess. And I'm going to turn it over to Miss Rebecca Fincher, who is going to lead our conversation. And um, I'll just, you know, you, you can just ask me questions. I don't How does this work? I mean, do I, do I just... <laughs> we, we all appreciate Matt's humor at Conway Regional, and that's why he's so wonderful to work with. Oh, wait a minute. For. I have something. To, I'm kidding. Uh, not now? Oh, sorry. And, you know, so for an organization to be innovative, that really has to be a priority that is set by the leadership and particularly the CEO. And so to really give you all an authentic representation of the innovative and the bold approach that we took at Conway Regional, we felt like that you needed to hear that story from Matt himself. So that's that's really why we're turning the tables here to give you an authentic representation um, of the leadership that took place uh, among um, in the midst of this worldwide pandemic. And so um, we're we're happy that Matt's become comfortable being an interviewee today. And so the, the pressure is on for all of us. So really, Matt, I think the first question is just what what was your approach to this, this crisis? You've kind of laid some groundwork about when you first came to Conway Regional and, and some of those same feelings that um, were reignited when, when the pandemic started here and we had our first case. But really, what was your overall approach from a leadership standpoint going into this? You know, anytime a group or, or any one of us go through a challenge, whether it's um, potential job loss or uh, your, own, your own health um, situations at home, any challenge you can think of, there are five uh, high-level things that come into play. And we talk about this a lot at, at a leadership level at Conway Regional, but someone is affected by either their challenge to status, um, is in, such as their job, for example, their degree of certainty, their degree of autonomy, uh, relatedness, or fairness. It's called the SCARF model. And so when this challenge hit us, I thought, okay, people are going to um, be anxious. I mean, understandably so. We knew our community was very anxious, um, and our staff are certainly not, not immune to that, even though I think healthcare workers are some of the most brave and courageous, uh, intelligent people um, in, in our country. Uh, they still feel that, the, the very same. And so my head started to go to how can we address those, those components. Conway Regional is the only hospital that I know of, and I say this with some authority. I've been in 
healthcare. Dang, this makes me feel old. A quarter of a century, uh, 25 years that I have, um, I've been in this business. It's the only hospital that I've ever known that has not had a layoff. Just let that sink in if you're driving down your car, driving down the road in your car or, or on a walk and, and, and you've been in healthcare. We've never had a, a layoff. So in part, I didn't want to be that guy. <laughs> I didn't want to be the guy who, uh, yeah, that Matt Tripp guy, he's nice, but, you know, we had that layoff. You know, I didn't, I didn't want that, that to be on my record. I think more importantly, uh, I was more driven by how, how can I help alleviate people's threat of status, their, their degree of certainty, their, their perceived autonomy, you know, how they relate to this, and do it in a fair way so that, we weren't, you know, saving certain people's jobs at the sacrifice of others or causing certain people pain um, at the sacrifice of others. So there was some sense of, of, of equity, you know, and, and fairness in this. Um, we have a family motif, as I know everyone at the table can appreciate and certainly buys into. So as a family member, you know, you don't, you don't want your sibling to hurt more than you. You don't want, um, you, you want to all share the burden of, of supporting each other. So there were things that, that, as we started to think about, okay, how do we how do we do this? Um, we, we wanted to make sure that we preserved and uh, having access to to cash just to pay bills, just like you do at home. So true here at Conway Regional. You know, we have a checking account at Centennial Bank. A little shout out to Centennial Bank there. Uh, but we need to make sure that we had operating cash to to pay bills. We have certain debt covenants that we have to meet. Um, we have capital projects that we were engaged in that we needed to do. And so these are all things, and, and not knowing, frankly, how long this was going to last. Um, I can remember we were kind of giggling before where we thought, well, maybe we'll just get through you know, spring break, or certainly by Easter, we're all going to be back to church, and we're all going to be back into our normal scope of things. And I just quit saying that now. I just <laughs> decided that, uh, uh, just, just going to quit pointing to a date. But so you didn't know. You didn't know, you know, so whatever plan we came up with, it had to, it had to, address those factors, not only just the very real realities, the economics, but then also how do we do this in a way that over time we can sustain without ruining our culture. And, and in times like this, I, I give a, a, a lot of praise to, to Jeff Standrich. I can remember having a conversation with him. Jeff's on our board. He said, you know, in, in uh, chaos, there is opportunity. In, in challenge, uh, there is opportunity. And in this pandemic, there is opportunity. There's opportunity to to leverage our great team and maybe do something that others won't even think about doing. So I know that I've heard you mention before that you're, you're very proud of the, the team and the organization's response. And you, and you mentioned it here at the, the beginning of this podcast. And as you said, you have a quarter century of experience in healthcare. And so when we have experience in certain things, you know, the second or third time around that we do them, we get better, we develop muscle. Well, in, in this situation, you have a great deal of experience as a healthcare leader. Um, you've got a worldwide pandemic that no one really has any experience with. There's an incredible amount of uncertainty. And so I'm just, I'm just curious, what is it in, in your past or from your experience in healthcare that really influenced the way that you wanted this organization to approach our response um, to, to the, the landscape? You know, I have shown many people an article, I, I haven't referenced it in quite some time, um, but it came out maybe, you know, 10 years ago that talked about healthcare losing its soul. You know, so much of healthcare and particularly hospitals harken back to um, a nonprofit church-based 
route. You know, um, you think about St. Vincent and Little Rock, their story is, is really cool. Nuns from Kentucky got on, you know, horses and came all the way to, to Arkansas in the middle of the yellow fever of, uh, of the late 1800s and uh, came with nothing, no, no means to be able to um, support themselves. Uh, that is bold, you know, and I think so much of healthcare has lost a lot of its boldness uh, and connection back to its, its roots. So I wanted uh, our, our story to reflect our character. And I think that, you know, if you've been in, at Conway Regional, spent any time at Conway Regional, I hope you have that sense of uh, it's an organization with some character and some spunk to it. And I wanted um, us to reflect our, that, that character because, frankly, you, you leverage your strengths in times of challenge. And uh, I knew that that was a, that was a strength of ours. Um, so... So I really, I want to dig down deep there. You, you mentioned that, and I've heard you say that before, that there are aspects of healthcare where essentially healthcare has lost its soul. And then you, you kind of talk about, you know, you come into this organization where there's never been a layoff combined with uncertainty of a, a worldwide pandemic. Um, you know, it, it's still going on here. We're, we're well six months into this um, since our first case here in Arkansas. But as, as you were juggling all these things as the CEO and, I'm just curious, what did you, what did you kind of think about at night? I mean, what was that like, you know, leaving work, not that you ever really leave work, but le leaving the physical place, what went through your head at, at night as you were trying to kind of lead and manage this crisis? It was both surreal in the sense that like, you, you can't believe this is occurring and all these things are, are happening and uh, overwhelming uh, all at the same time. Um, I can recall, and I know we we did a Facebook interview, and I got you know, very emotional about just thinking about the sacrifice of our staff and uh, the fact that we had staff that volunteered to work in roles that that took care of some of our earliest COVID patients, and we still do do, do today. Uh, the fact that uh, so many staff were willing to step into different roles just to maintain employment and um, and being like I said before absolutely terrified. I mean, it was in late March and I know, I know you recall this conversation and, and I'm sure others do too, but you know, there was, there were projections to say that um, we were going to have upwards of 80 ventilated COVID patients in our hospital. And we have about uh, 23, I think the number is, uh, ventilators in our hospital. Uh, so the, the, the concern there was very, very real because prior two weeks before some of these projections were, were coming out. And at that point, we had about a two-week stretch that they were absolutely dead-on accurate. <laughs> They've since been very inaccurate. It's not to say that it's not been a burden, but um, the ability to predict, you know, COVID volumes and trends is, is very difficult. But I remember feeling overwhelmed. I remember feeling, um, gosh, I don't know how we're going to do this. I remember thinking, you know, how are we going to how are we going to respond to to this? Um, and really thinking though, ultimately, I don't know any other way to to act in the face of challenge than um, in a in a bold way, just like I talked about with those with those nuns, um, having the the courage to put uh, your faith to work. And um, I, I look around our industry, and I think that's lost in many respects. Um, I don't want to tell that story. I want to tell a story of. Uh, boldly putting our faith to work and uh, seeing what God can do with with the team. Um, you know, some of our 
concerns was we didn't have a game plan. You know, I, I remember having conversations about different topics and questions and thinking, okay, there's, there's maybe not a, a hard and fast policy on this issue. CDC is kind of vague. Uh, the Arkansas Department of Health is kind of vague. So uh, one of my favorite phrases began to be, well, let's talk this out. <laughs> what kind of what makes sense? What's realistic? How can we, how can we do this? And um, one of the most incredible things, and I'm sure we'll get to this in a moment, was just to see how our team responded, uh, really with not a whole lot of direction, without a whole lot of resources, just stepped in and figured it out. And, and I'm sure our listeners are incredibly appreciative of the vulnerability you're showing here, right? The feeling of being a little overwhelmed, not really knowing how to respond. Um, but, but the question I have before we move on to the team is, so, you know, you, you share all those things, but, it, but at the end of the day, for the team to rise to the occasion, they had to be inspired. And so what was it that you would say that you, you did or that you, you mentally got yourself in the right space to be able to inspire these people to respond the way they did? Because I think that's what's so incredible um, about what we're going to talk about here in just a moment is, is, is how everyone kind of stepped in with not a lot of direction, but obviously they had to have inspiration from somewhere. So maybe just respond to that and, and, and tell us how you feel like you inspired the team. Hot sauce was really important. I'm kidding. Hot sauce was key. <laughs> um, we had a lot of meals together, um, and I, I love Tabasco and, and spices, and so uh, there are many pictures of me at, at lunch, breakfast, or dinner, doesn't matter, uh, with, with hot sauce. Even snacks, it'll, I'll sprinkle it on anything. In all seriousness, though, um, you know, I, I think, again, that desire to be uh, innovative and bold, um, the, the backing and support from our board to know that um, that they were willing to step into this journey with us, um, you know, was, was an inspiration for me. Obviously, you know, coming at this from a, a position of, of faith, um, you know, I, I knew that God had this and whether uh, he was going to use this to tell a great story or to refine our team in some new and exciting way that ultimately uh, if we put our work with faith, with good intents, that um, he can use that to do really, really incredible um, things. You know, one of the things that I also wanted to do and I wanted staff to see was that uh, we were responding differently and really to help them to point out how we were responding differently. I remember, you know, using the phrase that we're going to kick COVID butt, you know, nobody else was talking about kicking COVID butt. Everybody was talking about laying people off, uh, running away, hospitals going out of business, uh, physicians, you know, running with their, like, their hairs on fire. Um, I think to provide a contrast, I think was really, and I hope was really important to staff, doing things like a relaxation lounge, you know, getting massage chairs, uh, which Mr. Gibbs was obviously very instrumental in, but, you know, we got six massage chairs, put them in a room with low lighting, nice snacks, and um, told staff, that, that we pay, right, to go sit in a massage chair during their break, to, to get a break, to get away uh, from from their work unit and uh, and their day-to-day. We gave them free meals. You know, these are things that just, I don't know, we'll talk about a lot of these things here in a moment, but I wanted to do things that were unique, that were different, that sent a message to staff, we're with you, we care about you, that also helped address some of those things that we talked about before of autonomy, certainty, uh, we we never talked about a layoff. You know, we we never talked about okay on Tuesday we got some bad news coming. Um, it, it was important that the messaging and communication, which I know you were obviously key key member of, um, 
needed to, to tell a contrasting story to what people were hearing. Because I think when they hear that, they're going to grab onto that and they're going to say, wow, that's really cool. I want to be a part of that. My loyalty and my, my, um, my values align with that. And um, that's really where I think my, my head was. But I, I can't under, underestimate enough, you know, it, it's, it's scary. I mean, it was, it was really one of those things of just kind of like being on a roller coaster. Uh, this is awesome. It's beautiful to see, but uh, it, you know, it was it had a, its own bit of of fear. And I think as leaders, you mentioned you know being vulnerable. I think you you have to be le- vulnerable as a leader. Um, I think it helps to connect to the team. And uh, I think Greg Rochelle, Craig Rochelle, has a great phrase that goes something along the lines of you know people don't always want to follow a leader who's always right but they, they do want to follow someone they can always trust and, and know and, and uh, believe is genuine and real. And so uh, that's, what, that's what I knew I had to be throughout this. So, Billy, for those who don't know, Billy is our Corporate Director of Operations for the Physician Enterprise. Um, but one thing through this pandemic, we all had to take on different new other responsibilities. So that bullet point in the job description of other duties as assigned became the first bullet point for many of us. And so I know one of the things we talk about rising to the occasion and re- responding in a way that is um, Conway Regional in nature, you were asked to set up drive-through drive-through screening process um, and testing. And so first, how did you feel when when you were kind of given that responsibility? What was the first thing that went through your mind? Uh, first thing that went through my mind is like like Matt just said, let's, let's go on for like two weeks and it'll, it'll be done and we'll, we'll get back to uh, business. But um, doing a little research and looking um, what other locations in the U.S. were doing in the communities – uh, you start to anticipate like, oh, wow, this is, this is going to turn into something bigger um, down the road. Um, and then just thinking about staff, like how are we going to staff it? How are you going to ask staff to go out and test for COVID? Uh, that was one of my main concerns. But uh, it, it happened very quickly. I really didn't have time to, to really think about it. It was March 11th. We talked about it. March 13th, it was open. Um, so we, we acted very nimble on that. Um, yeah. So, so that's 48 hours. Um, (laughs) yeah, I I sometimes can't order my groceries and go pick them up in 48 hours. So tell us how you did it. How did you set up a drive-through screening process? Yeah, really, you know, and I know we're going to get to this. Um, what do we learn from this experience? It was an opportunity. It was, it wasn't going to be a perfect business plan, right? get the logistics down, let's just try it, uh, and then critique it from there. Uh, and the team, and I can't tell you, the, the nursing staff from some of the clinics, uh, the lab, Julia, who's with us today, we all were constantly huddling, it seemed like every hour, uh, on critiquing the process, and it just got better from there on out. So that we, we rolled with it. We figured it out, as Matt said, as, as we went. So you had 48 hours to set this up. You mentioned there were periodic huddles where you were bringing the team together and you were adapting, you were evolving based on things that were going well, things that needed to be adjusted. Um, But then you also mentioned you had to have this conversation with people about, hey, can you go out here and test folks that might be positive for COVID? So tell us a little bit about that, because I can just imagine that would be a really difficult conversation to have. So how how did that happen for you? 
So we had, um, obviously during that week of the volume dropped in our primary care clinics. So we had a group of nurses, care coordinators, uh, I'm gonna name them out, Sharon Dean, Heather Davis, Kayla Kennard, and Tiffany Gunther. Um, and I talked to them, I was like, hey guys, you know, volume is dropping and really need y'all's help over here for uh, COVID testing. And they they were all on board. There was some scare, like, give me, give me your feedback. Let me know what, what are your fears and what are you scared of? And obviously it was COVID, right? That was the unknown. Um, no one really knew about this virus. Uh, so we went through the protocols. Andrea and Erica Spear were out there helping with the PPE. Like, if you follow this process, you are safe. And they did that. Um, I, I tell you, the courage that they had, it really wasn't much push there. They, they just jumped in and did it. Um, so just sitting down and talking through the process really helped them out. And, and I think that that's a common theme that we saw through Conway Regional, right? And so I've heard Matt say before, you know, we, we run into the plague and we run into the fire, whatever the crisis is, we run to it. And so you had staff volunteering on the COVID unit. You essentially had folks um, in the primary care part of the physician enterprise where we saw, um, you know, the community stop just essentially stopping going to their primary care office so that was really where the volume drop became so there what there weren't patients that needed to be cared for at that time and so then you have these these folks who normally work in the clinics that were agreeing to take on a different responsibility and go and test for COVID and and I can remember and because that was in the the west side of the hospital and we, we would need to walk through there to get to other parts of the hospital walking through and they have music playing and just the camaraderie among them. So tell us a little bit about how you help foster, facilitate, and cultivate that camaraderie among the folks who were literally on the front lines going out, swabbing people for, for COVID. Yeah. I just think talking them through it, playing the music that helped ease the mind. Um, talking about other things outside of just COVID, you know, and how this was, going to help the community as a whole like they were on the front line helping everybody like this was something no one else in Conway was doing at the time and they were on the front line actually providing the service and I think that really boosted them up that really gave them a just a drive to do this um, on the front end. And then, you know, bouncing back to Matt. So, Matt, what did that mean to you to see that come together in 48 hours in the way that Billy's kind of talked about? As the, as the CEO leading the, sh- the captain of the ship, what did that mean to you? I, I, I first want to touch upon something, and, and Billy kind of, uh, in his usual humble way, kind of glosses over it. I just Googled this on my phone to make sure. March 11th was the first COVID-positive uh, person in Arkansas. So, you know, I don't, you don't know what you were doing March 9th and 10th, but I'm sure you had a full <laughs> clinic day. I mean, in all seriousness, it was like, you know, life's normal, right? And then suddenly from the 11th and 48-hour time frame that you're talking about, we close an entrance to our hospital. We just say, you know what, we're going to put this, and I still hate it, yellow tape over the doors. We're going to shut this down. We're going to totally disrupt traffic flow across our campus, and we're going to now make this a testing site. And um, the, the pivot is just really remarkable. Um, you know, it meant, it meant a lot to me. I I think, you know, we spend a lot of our time as leaders trying to motivate and engage and align. You know, I I kind of think about that and and engage people in what you're trying to do and then try to align them to to the goals of the organization. But when a group of people and somebody like Billy can say, I got it and jump in and do it, um, I think it's a great representation of, um, of what's best about our health system and what's best about, about healthcare. So it was really cool to, to see, um, to see them come together. But then also, I mean, they were tired. I mean, that was, 
it was hard work. It still continues to be very hard work. <laughs> um, you know, in the in the midst of you know uh, an Arkansas summer, wearing all that PPE yeah. um, in the rain, in the in the hot, and and soon to be snow, maybe I don't know. Um, out there in those conditions, um, it's it's really remarkable and and refreshing to see uh, people come come around and come come together for a purpose like that. And so then in addition to standing up a, a drive-thru in 48 hours, Jeremy, Jeremy Hinojosa, the director of our health and fitness center is with us today. Jeremy, you get a call on a Sunday afternoon. Tell us about that call and kind of what happened after that. Yeah, um, yeah we, it was a interesting phone call to, uh, you know, find out that I was going to need to inform our play center supervisor that we were going to close our play center to members the very next day and open a, a full-time daycare. Uh, so uh, I really want to say hats off to our play center supervisor, Gracie Hardy, for really rising to the challenge. Um, I've, I've mentioned that multiple times, but that was an enormous undertaking, you know, to go from, um, you know, the play center's been in operation since the fitness center opened 25 years ago, and uh, you've been kind of a beacon in the community, but, but we staffed the play center during peak times at the fitness center, so we're really only open, you know, seven and a half, eight hours a day. Uh, and a few hours on the weekends, and then to go from that model to uh, a, basically a 12-hour-a-day model, uh, five days a week, was an enormous challenge, not only from a staffing standpoint, but from, you know, uh, that we, we had to get licensed. And uh, so we appreciate the Department of Health uh, assistance with that, but that was an, an enormous challenge that, uh, you know, we, as everyone knows, this situation escalated so quickly. We went from, you know, just kind of restricting access to the facility to, all of a sudden, we had to close the fitness center. Uh, we actually opened up the daycare prior to that, and so we appreciate our members for being so, uh, you know, gracious in, in understanding that. And uh, but it was an enormous challenge, and I think that you know we were very fortunate <clears throat> with our staff that um, it was actually a blessing that we were closed because there was no way we would have been able to completely staff the faci- the, the daycare with with our existing play center staff so it was an opportunity for us to give some hours to our part-time staff who who weren't able to work and and some other departments in the hospital that assisted with that as well Um, we actually got some new scheduling tools from an innovation standpoint that arose out of that that we're actually using throughout our entire department now and uh, but uh, it was you know we were very fortunate that we had um, some staff on board that had had experience in the daycare uh, industry uh, who assisted us with the process, but there were numerous hands, and it was a full-time job just getting every everyone's background check and fingerprint done uh, to the, the state coming in, and, and we were able to really elevate some of our safety uh, considerations in the center uh, that we've we've taken forward, you know, from a capacity standpoint and improving the safety for, for children in the, in the play center going forward. But, uh, you know, it's really important, and Matt, Matt is really passionate about this, that, you know, employees who have to stay home with their kids can't can't work and they can't provide care to those in the community that need it. So uh, just really, you know, what the one thing that comes to mind, and I've gotten emotional about it from time to time, is just how our play center staff really stepped up to the challenge. I never once received a complaint from anyone about, you know, being asked to do more. And I think it was important for them to see that, that we have a higher calling here, that there's a need in the community, and we were just uh, very happy to play our role in helping our staff provide care for those patients that needed it during this time. And so for those listening, the governor announced on a Sunday afternoon that schools would be closed and the daycare opened on? It opened Monday. 
on Monday, the next day. So in, in about 16 hours, you stood up a daycare. And so not that it's a competition, Billy, on the 48 <laughs> hours of the drive-thru or the 16 with the daycare. Yes. <laughs> so in 16 hours. So you're going to essentially go from running, um, you know, a 70,000 plus square foot medically based health and fitness center where 10% of the population has a membership here in Conway to taking care of children of your colleagues. What goes through your head? Well, you know, I, I'm a father of two. I have a 10 and a six year old and I have my, I have my beliefs on how to raise my children and I think they're doing okay. Um, but you know, this was, uh, I, I'll tell you, I, I'm, I'm not trained to do, to, to run a daycare and obviously relied on a lot of our staff to do that, but it was, uh, it was an enormous challenge, uh, for a lot of reasons. There was a lot going on at the center at that time in the hospital anyway. And, uh, you know, you had to understand that, that you here are children that are, uh, I think this gets lost in, in the, the whole thing is we took, there were a lot of children that were pulled out of their daycare or their school, school was still going on and thrust into this health and fitness center where they've never been before. And, um, you know, there, did we have behavioral issues? Sure. All, all, all environments like that do. Uh, and I think we had to learn to show some extra grace and understanding with those children and the parents for what they were being asked to do, you know, not to mention all the stress that the parents are undergoing at work, uh, dealing with all this as well. But uh, it was good for me. You know, I've learned so much since I've been at Conway Regional in so many different aspects and been asked to reevaluate myself personally. And, and this was a good opportunity for me to step back and see, you know, what other parents and children are dealing with and, uh, and, and listen better uh, and, uh, and, and look at other ways to, to, to motivate children, to encourage children. And uh, it's just, it was an enormous challenge all around. I couldn't have done it without, without my teammates, but it was, you know, it's, it's a different world. It's, you know, early childhood education is, is a different world. And, you know, another thing that, that we really had to put a lot of emphasis on is understanding that, you know, we're going from an environment where we're having kids come in for an hour or two, you know, and they come to play while their parents, while we give their parents an opportunity to work out. And now we need to provide more than just playtime. We've got to learn, you know, what, how can we, are there lesson plans? We need to create an environment where kids can work on their Chromebook and get schoolwork done, uh, keep them, you know, it was once, the, play, once the, the fitness center closed, it was actually kind of a blessing because it became this enormous playground. It was a cool place. Kids loved it. Uh, we had a gym and a basketball court and all these fun things to do. Um, but uh, we just really need to understand that we have a need their needs that, that to be met with these children. It's not just keep an eye on them. We need to keep them, uh, you know, um, encouraged, stimulated, and understand that there's there's enormous change being thrust on them and their families uh, at that time. Well, and you know, Jeremy, I'm a personal huge fan of the Health and Fitness Center and the experience you provided. My son, who was three and a half at the time, went to the Health and Fitness Center daycare through all of this. So fortunate to have that. Um, but one thing I did see in Prue, you mentioned it being a large playground, his 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 coordination got a lot better and his what we'll call quote unquote athleticism just got a little bit better. So I attribute any of that to the Health and Fitness Center. So kudos to you. And so I think really what's important here from a leadership standpoint, Matt, is for you to kind of share with our listeners, why was it important to do this, right? Because you certainly could have taken a stance that this is not our responsibility, right? We are a, a place of employment. People still need to figure out how to get to work. You, you could have taken that stance, but instead it was, we, 
we need to take care of one another. And so tell us, tell us a little bit about what was going through your head and why it's important to do, do this sort, have this sort of approach for, um, for our Conway Regional family. Well, it absolutely was, um, something I feel very, very passionate about. Um, as we keep saying, Conway Regional has a family culture and a family feel, family vibe to it. And uh, to be able to provide a, a daycare where we could literally, uh, not just you know metaphorically, like we're, we're a work family, but literally my kids and your kids getting together, um, uh, that, that is family. And that really helps people to unite and, and to bring, uh, bring together uh, their, their, their beliefs and their backgrounds and really to um, get to know each other better. I know that I had a child in daycare uh, at a hospital I worked at, at Presbyterian Hospital of Dallas, and it really opened my eyes to my colleagues. I mean, there are people that, that my son would not have interacted with, I would not have known, if not for the fact that we both, you know, shared a daycare. And it gave us a, a sense of, um, you know, intimacy and getting to know each other that, that was really important. And again, I think it was one of those things that was a stark contrast to what the rest of the world was telling. Uh, when the rest of the world is going crazy, we knew that that parents uh, needed to have uh, some certainty and some sense that um, uh, of control and ha- being able to say, you know what, we can be a daycare option for you. We we can take that burden, uh, that worry off of your shoulders by um, by converting our fitness center into a into a daycare. I will just say, just from a leadership standpoint, and Jeremy, as I heard you talk, it, uh, a memory popped into my head when you first came to Conway Regional. Um, I remember us sitting down and talking about sort of our expectations of leaders, and and um, you know, I think it's fair to say you you and I, and and I know others here have worked at different health systems in the past, but sometimes you get a boss who might say, or a hospital might say, you know what, as as a leader, you know, this is your shop. I want you to own it. And you have autonomy. You know, you 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 really control things, and then you find out very quickly that that's not the case, <laughs> right? You have you have rules that get forced upon you. You try to do things, you get held back. You get your staff cut. Uh, you know, without your really buy-in or even participation. Um, and those that don't know, Jeremy is a rule follower. Is that a fair way to describe you? Uh, yes, I think I'm describe that way as One hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And so one of the cool things is just to see how different leaders responded to this to this chaos because I remember us talking it was on a on a weekend in my office and the governor I think it was on a Saturday the governor announced I'm closing school and like we had had some conversation about this potential of becoming yeah. a daycare provider um but obviously hadn't hadn't set a time frame, hadn't enacted the plan. I remember calling you on the weekend. You're like, well, wait a minute, what, what about diapers? How are they going to eat? Uh, don't, don't they have to be in different age cohorts? And I don't have teachers. They're not certified teachers. Um, and what about the state? You know, like, you know, it's just I could hear the panic uh, <laughs> in, your, in your voice. Um, but, but y'all did a, really did a phenomenal job of being thrust into a situation and just figuring it out, you know. I'm getting comfortable with the word guidelines. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And and so um, I I think that that's a that's a that's a really interesting point to to think about all all the things that kind of had to be done. And so Jeremy, I think I'll just go ahead and ask you the question: What did you learn from all of this? What did, from the 
from the call that you got on the weekend to setting it up 16 hours later. Um, and then, you know, seeing it operate for six or eight weeks, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. What, what did you learn from all that? Well, I think, you know, to, to the point being made right now, I think that, you know, when I think back, so many times we realized that this is uncharted territory. There is no playbook for this. And I think that I learned not to be afraid to, set, to create your own trail, mm-hmm. create your own road, because there was no template out there for, for this situation, for the way health and fitness centers deal with this. I still have colleagues who are, whose facilities aren't open. And uh, I learned to not be afraid to take risks. Uh, as Matt told me when I first got here, he's a fr- he doesn't care if you fail. You know, we know that we tried. And to not be afraid to stick your neck out there and to be bold and uh, because we are called to make a difference. And I think that, you know, personally, I've learned to, to knock down some of that fear that I have of, of failing. And so as we kind of talk about, we, you know, we've stood up a drive-through to be able to serve the community. We're trying to take care um, of our Conway Regional family so that they can continue to take care of the community by providing a daycare. There were other things that we did for the staff. And so, Mr. Gibbs, this is where I, I turn to you. And, and I just, I have, I have all of these questions about the, the approach to staff wellness from a relaxation room to um, the approach that the cafeteria and nutritional services took um, to the on-site exercise area. And so really, and, and then even Billy mentioned it earlier, um, the changing the West parking lot so that a drive-through can happen. And so all of these are things that touch areas that, uh, that you influence and that you oversee. And so before we get into specifics, I mean, what, what was that like for you? Besides crazy? Yeah. Uh, and, and very scary. I'm, I'm a rule follower myself. No, no. You're a rule follower? I am a rule follower, um, in case anybody doesn't know. Um, it was very difficult in the beginning to take that baton and run um, because of how we operate previously, there's, there's rules to follow, there's approvals to get, and, and I think that was what Matt brought, um, was fail full speed. Yeah. And, I'm not, <laughs> and, and he said several times, Gibbs, I'm not afraid to fail, yeah. um, even though I am. Um, so that, as we went on, that got a little bit easier just to jump in there, let's screw this up, let's fix it, make it better, and, and just evolve as we, we have no idea what we're doing. Um, so that, that was the biggest hurdle was just to get myself and the team that would be helping me do that to get past that. Let's just get that done. And it's, it's always, I giggle internally anytime that you, you specifically, Mr. Gibbs talk about screwing up because there, it doesn't ever seem that that happens. And so it, it seems like, Hey, go create a relaxation room. Hey, make an onsite exercise room. And these things happen and they, they happen so they're done so well and they're very, very thought out. And so it's, it's so interesting to hear someone kind of get their own perspective versus maybe what it looked like to the outside. So I just kind of add that commentary. Well, and to be honest, I mean, we worked 60 some odd days straight, everybody, um, weekends, phone calls, trying to get things done. Um, about 45 days into it, I was just very concerned that I was not meeting the people's expectation because we were moving so fast. And there was things that, man, I wish I would have thought of that. Well, but we didn't have a, any idea. But it's hard to not you know, internalize that and go, man, why didn't I catch that? And so that was a very difficult thing to um, get over. It was about 60 days that I got a rhythm and kind of um, had a little sigh and went, okay, 
this is the new norm, let's go, and learn to react quicker. And so we, we've talked just a little bit about the relaxation room a couple times, um, and, and we can get to the on-site exercise facility that you all created. Um, talk to us a little bit about the approach that Nutritional Services had with regard to serving our employees. And so maybe tell our listeners a little bit about that. Well, early on, Matt made it very apparent that we were going to take care of our employees, and, and one of those things were um, to provide free meals um, and I think it evolved into delivering meals because we were really wanting to keep people employed, um, keep them on board, and so let's find a task for them to do. Um, So delivering meals helps the staff member out and also gives other staff members a job. Um, And I think it was really cool because I did get uh, comments later on that nursing staff that were delivering meals now have a newfound respect for the people that work in nutritional services because they get to see what they did every day. Um, we had people from the maintenance department delivering. We had nursing. We, did, we had people from all over um, acting as meal delivery um, staff members. So it, I think the employees appreciated the free meal. They also appreciated the effort to go and deliver it so they could um, take care of patients and, and, and do all that. And you, Nutritional services also, their, their jobs were to go by in the exercise room, make sure there was water, and make sure there's snacks in the relaxation room, and um, make special baskets for the COVID unit, and so that way they had extra snacks and everything. So everybody kind of went above and beyond to make sure the, everything was taken care of. And so as you led the effort to really get the, the parking lot the way that it needed to be to support the drive through make sure that our employees were taken care of with free meals and reduced um, prices on take-home meals, setting up an exercise room, making sure that a relaxation room has all the things that it needs so that our employees can take care of the, the community. How did that make you feel to see people respond in such a way um, that they were appreciative, but also see them utilize those things that that you frankly, you know, led make, making happen. What's a good feeling? Because, you know, in the very beginning, because we didn't know how everything was working, that what I do first thing in the morning is make rounds. Is, is, is everything in the exercise room? Is, did they, is the music going in the relaxation room? And then people stopping you in the hall and go, they would stop me like I made that room. I didn't. I mean, it was everybody together made that room, but I was kind of in charge of that. So it was good that people stopped and said, man, it's the best thing in the world. Don't ever let those chairs go away. (laughs) Um, And they haven't left. Um, The company that we dealt with, um, I called to ask how much it would cost to go ahead and buy them because we were renting them, and they gave them to us. uh, So it was really good that they are our chairs now um, because I think they appreciated what healthcare was doing um, in the COVID situation. So... it makes you proud that you had the hand in making somebody feel a little bit better and make their day a little bit better. And for those who don't know, Brian is married to a nurse. So his inspiration for taking care of our staff certainly comes um, from his personal life as well. And so that's why he was so well suited to make sure that these, these happen, these things happened and that they were done so well. I love people and I'm a giver. So that. (laughs) (laughs) Brian is your typical introvert, and so we we all chuckle about that statement. He's going to be in the fetal position after this episode, I'm pretty sure. He's going to need some time alone after this. And and so I think what is so interesting that's coming out here, you know, Matt, you mentioned it a little bit earlier with the daycare, that we had, um, you know, kids who may never get the opportunity to interact, and frankly, parents that may not get the opportunity to interact, to come together um, and develop empathy for one another, get to know one another, develop relationships that otherwise would not exist. And then we hear the same thing with some of the things that Brian talked about 
where we were redeploying rather than unemploying. And we had nurses who were delivering um, meals to their colleagues so that we could keep folks employed. And so there was there's this common theme of empathy um, for, for one another. And so in healthcare, empathy is, is very prevalent among our staff, but this was a little bit of new muscle. So maybe kind of tell us about that, how that made you feel. Just respond to that and give us your perspective on, on that. Well, you know, kind of getting back to some of the comments I made earlier, I was talking to a colleague of mine not too long ago um, about how hard it was for him to send staff home. That when COVID came, um, they didn't have work to do. They sent staff uh, home and sent them away from the plague, as we as we like to say. And how hard that was on people. I mean, um, while. While, while Brian jokes about being a, a, a giver, I know he cares deeply. I know he has a, a deep concern, a deep passion for for people and for for his organization. And for me to have come to him and said, "Okay, Brian, go home. I'll, I'll call you if I need you when I need you." Um, you know, we we would have lost a, a sense of passion and commitment to the organization. Somebody who I like to to call the pink elephant guy. You know, I, if I asked for a pink elephant in the lobby tomorrow at nine o'clock, he'd have one there. Uh, magically, and so we would have lost that. And so um, I think, in part, it's we are a family. We've got strengths and gifts. We've got rule followers. We've got improvisers, <laughs> and, and another rule follower here on my left with Brian. Um, and how do how do we how do we use them uh, to protect each other and to to help each other in this you know, very very difficult time? Um, I think from my perspective, what I kept thinking about is how, how can we make life easier? How can we help people out? How can we, what can we reasonably do that um, addresses people's fear and concern in, in a way that is uh, real, touches them, and um, is within our, within our reach as an employer? And so I want to pivot just a, a little bit and talk about partnerships. And so, Matt, I know since your arrival, or at least my assessment, since your arrival here at Conway Regional, you know that we are going to have a posture of partnerships, whether that's with our patients, our the community we serve, um, our physicians, our, our staff, whomever, we're going to be a good partner and we're going to do the right thing, which is personally one of the things that makes me so proud to work at Conway Regional. And so this idea of community partnerships in a pandemic with our public schools, our colleges, and their athletic departments, the city, um, the fire department, anyone that we could be a partner to or that we could bring something to the table, I know we had a a strong posture of being a good partner. So kind of talk to us about that, how that came about, and, and why it was important. We have performed... And Billy can back me up here, but we have performed about 23,000, 24,000 COVID tests since March 13th. Does that sound about right, That's Billy? Right. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere around there. That's a lot of data. Um, and if you know me, you know that I, I love data. Um, someone once told me they were recruiting for a chief financial officer, and their comment was, well, I just want a chief financial officer with a personality. And they said, well, what that is is a CEO. So that's me. I, I love data. Uh, I, I love, um, you know, really the, the power of, of the story that, that can be told through data. I was on a staycation. I was, I forget the date, uh, but it was um, a few days that I just said, I'm going to take off. I'm just going to going to hang out at the house. We're not going to go anywhere. And I got a call from, from Houston Davis. I had been mulling over this thought of how can we use this data that, that, that we have from all these COVID tests and our location up in Dardanelle, our clinics, 
and really get some intel on, you know, where do we have hot spots? Where, where do we, what age groups seem to be most impacted? And frankly, you know, also just wanting to know when that patient walks in the hospital, if they have COVID signs and symptoms, that we get them to the appropriate level of care and with appropriate level of protection possible. And so it seemed to me to, to be that if we bring in community partners like the colleges and universities and the schools, that we've got this group of individuals that represents thousands of lives. And we could use that data and collaborate to set standards on how we're going to treat COVID, how we're going to test. We can you know, really uh, combine our strengths and, and our size to make a meaningful difference. And so from that staycation phone call from uh, Dr. Houston Davis at UCA um, and uh, Ellis Arnold, we started to talk about how at Hendricks, how we can work together. And from that has come what we call the consortia. So every Tuesday morning, um, we, we get together on a call with those colleges and uh, with uh, Conway Public Schools, and we talk about what we see in terms of positivity rates by age group, uh, by, by zip code, and by area. Uh, we talk about you know, how many uh, staff and or um, uh, students we have in quarantine so that we're sharing data, we're, we're learning from each other, and we're staying a step ahead to know when we're improving and when we really, really need to be concerned. And it's just been a great collaborative uh, dialogue and, and work group uh, throughout this pandemic. And so a key component of being able to be a good partner is having the infrastructure to support the things that you need to do to bring, that, that you bring to the table. And, and a big part of that for Conway Regional was um, our approach to telehealth and telemedicine. And so with us, we have Julia Chambers, who's an APRN in our physician enterprise. And so Julia really led our effort in the, the did the telehealth response. And so that supported not only our partnerships, but also the drive-through process that we talked about a little bit earlier. So Julia, tell us about what that experience was like for you. Well, initially when, uh, when we started telehealth or prior to starting telehealth, we were screening and our nurses were out there on the front lines and they were re reporting these symptoms and they were saying, Julia, that one's really sick. We were at a loss of how to see them as a patient because when somebody's that ill with COVID, bringing them into a clinic exposes much of your clinic. Um, so over the next four or five days, we started an online screening process, a call center. Um, with that developed, we were still trying to figure out how we could see that person live or so we started a, a virtual telemed program, and um, it is, it's been epic in helping prevent hospitalizations, uh, mortality even, I would say, and helping educate people on ways to prevent it and their quarantine and everything that has to do with COVID. Um, the telemed program was so successful that it ended up passing on to, you know, the family practice and all the subspecialties um, to be able to see people, you know, virtually and, and in, a, in a sense kind of triage their needs and, and get them the help that they need. So I can remember in the 
the thick of COVID or at least early on talking to both a cardiologist and a GI physician and how it kind of changed their interactions and their relationships with their patients because they were now seeing their patients in their in the patient's home, right? Because that's where they were doing it. So they were seeing some of the background and that sort of thing. So I'm sure that this experience for you was um, just a little different than your normal day-to-day. So tell us tell us about that. I'm just, I'm interested because anytime you start something new, it, it's not always perfect. There are, there are things that you monitor, that you adjust. And so just kind of give us your personal take on all that. I was a little apprehensive at first, that's for sure. Um, you know, not being able to touch my patient, listen to their heart and their lungs, you know, you have to go through those basic assessment skills and, and really focus on the little things and, and dig into their history and, and get them to really describe everything that's going on and to try and get that accurate picture in order to treat them appropriately. As I progressed through, like, by day three, I was like, wow, I like this. <laughs> because it was a way to reach those people that had nowhere to go. Yeah. I was, uh, I felt privileged to be able to take care of COVID patients and, and screen because nobody else would. And, and I just think Conway Regional is awesome for that because we were the first ones to start doing it. They were getting turned away from everywhere, and they felt so abandoned. Because mm-hmm. if you had a fever, you couldn't go into a clinic. They felt abandoned. And, that, I mean, this was a way to reach them and, and get them the care that they needed. And so, Billy, kind of overseeing that drive through process, why was it important that we were able to do this and do it so quickly? And, and how did this really supplement what we were offering in the drive through uh, I mean, it, it was a that interaction with the provider face-to-face. I mean, it, it was virtual, but it was still that face-to-face aspect. Um, the patients really appreciated it because it, was, it wasn't relaying, you know, communication's key, right? So you had a liaison basically going back and forth, and if you don't have all the little details, something could have been missed. Um, the, the patients didn't have to leave their home. You know, at the time, it was stay home, you know. Stay home, don't go anywhere. Uh, we had to adapt quickly. Um, you, you touched on it. Julia was was the first to go live, and then the rest of our primary care group went live the last week of March, um, which is pretty impressive. You're you're asking providers to do a different type of care um, virtually. Uh, we had plans to do this. Uh, I don't know. Seemed like a year ago, maybe. Matt's in the room. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but this was another opportunity to roll it out. Um, and we just ran with it. We all got on a call with 35 primary care providers. Uh, James was on that call from an IS standpoint, and there was all these questions like, this is never going to work. And then you got the other half is like, I'm going to love this. You know, so you had all these different mindsets. And, again, just another cool story uh, that our providers jumped in, they tried it, they adapted um, in this event and, and did it well, and the patients loved it. They, they were safe. The patients felt safe, they were at their own home, and could still get the care they needed at that time. So you had a couple of different components here. You had the drive-through and the COVID part of telehealth. You had, and then that really laid the groundwork for it to be expanded to the the rest of the primary care network to be able to continue 
as much as they possibly could, their normal day-to-day. And then you had specialists that were engaging in telehealth as well. So really what started in that drive-through with the COVID screening and testing with Julia really was was a spark for telehealth to catch on through the rest of the the organization. And so I guess, um, you know, as you, you kind of think about it that way, um, I'd, I'd like for Matt to kind of respond to why was it important that we were able to, to do that and how were we able to do that? And, and really what, what benefit overall, um, does that, does that bring to the community? Well, I think to start off, let, let's just, take ourselves back as painful as it might be to March of this year when this stuff was breaking and Julia pointed it out. We had shortages of of personal protective equipment. Um, So we had physicians offices saying, I I don't want that person to come in because I don't have enough, I may not have enough PPE to protect all my staff, much less the the patients that that come here. Um, We had screening services that were open and I won't mention any health systems names, but they had screening systems that, that were open that, that, frankly, all they did was ask you questions. I mean, there was, there was no test involved. There was no treatment involved. They would just ask you questions. And so um, one of the interesting things about this whole COVID situation, and we've talked about it in other podcasts, is that you've got this um, expanding and contraction, contracting sometimes simultaneously. This was one of those examples where um, we didn't have patients coming to our clinics, but we had this very knowledgeable, skilled, and as in Julia's case, workforce that wanted to contribute and, and wanted to be involved. And we had this need where we had patients showing up or calling who can't get in to see their primary care doctor or maybe don't have a primary care doctor and need a test um, because they've got symptoms. And again, just to reiterate here, we don't do tests at the hospital unless a physician orders it. Yeah, so you get people showing up without, without an order, without, without you know, an ability to, to have a test. And that's where I think you said, hey, I've got Julia. There's not a clinic going on because you work at the school-based clinic at that time at Ida Burns. And so we've got this great resource. We've got this need. Let's innovate and let's create this whole telemedicine service line uh, in an area that, that really desperately needs, needs yeah. her. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it grew, yeah, I didn't answer Rebecca's question fully, um, but how it affected that drive through It protected other primary care offices as well, right? Because if they got exposure, that, those offices shut down, and there's no care to be given yeah. when they shut down for 14 days. So I really think that supported not just our own our own clinics, but other primary care clinics in the in the community. Yeah. They, uh, they had telemed options as well, um, and... They, that's how they ordered COVID tests. Yeah. You, so. you had asked Rebecca about what it meant. You know, again, you go back, you look at the rest of the world, how different countries have handled COVID and what they've done well, what they've not done so well. Consistently, countries that had their act together from a testing and screening perspective tended to do well. They tended to do better. Let me just state this out there, and this, is, this may be shocking for some of you, but it's the God honest truth. We do not make money off of COVID tests. It is, it's our responsibility though. I, I think if we're gonna have a healthy community, if we're gonna stay ahead of this, if we're gonna uh, take care of people, we've, we've got to test. It's the only thing we know how to do. And it, it is remarkable, you know, when you go back again to look at, at March, we had so many patients coming in, we didn't know they had COVID or not. That terrifies people. Whether you work in radiology and you're taking that patient to the, get an X-ray or you're taking them to get an ultrasound or surgery or anywhere other part of the hospital. So many people who touch that patient are thinking, now I, I'm exposing myself 
to this illness. Offering testing gave us knowledge. It gave us the ability to know, hey, that patient tested, they're negative, or that patient tested positive. Here's how we need to respond. We saw our number of patients under suspicion of COVID drop dramatically uh, with the implementation of that drive-through. We suddenly had some answers. We had some knowledge, uh, again, going back to that SCARF model, some certainty about what we were dealing with, uh, which, which helped our, our staff. But it's absolutely our responsibility when you're in the middle of a pandemic, and the one thing you know that you can do to help with that pandemic is to test, is to support testing. It is absolutely the right thing to do. And so we could spend all day talking about COVID. As, as Brian mentioned, for, for a lot of us, it was 60 days straight. Um, whether that was the healthiest decision or not, it was 60 days straight, and we are well into six months um, of managing this. And so for, for many of us, just like for many of you, you know, we, we have had to figure out how to carry on, quote, normal quote unquote, normal operations while also managing um, our response to COVID and continuing to navigate the things that that COVID um, presents to us. And so um, as we conclude today, I would just kind of ask the group to respond to, to one question across the board within your respective areas and the things that you've taken on and, and, and excelled at and done so well. Really, what, what's next and what lies ahead for, for the things that, that you've worked on and how they will kind of transition into this quote unquote, normal way of being? So I'll kind of open that up to the group, and we'll let Billy respond first. Well, I do think uh, looking at this as, a, as an opportunity, I think there's so – COVID is not – it's obviously a pandemic. It's been a negative thing for the world. Looking at it differently, uh, at all the opportunities that are now available in healthcare, and now pushing forward with that going forward with the technology, even the drive-through. There's no technology with drive-through. It's the most manual thing ever, and it kind of irritates me. But it's um, – <laughs> there's going to be some opportunities with that later down the road. So take those resources and improve them going forward. And just operating wise and me as a leader growing, um, just jumping into things and doing them, um, working more nimble, the communication platform with teams working so much more efficiently. So as a leader doing things faster, quicker, and smarter. Yeah. And you, you hinted at it, but I'll go ahead and say, you know, how do we, make our drive through provide flu shots and, and other vaccines and that sort of thing. And so thinking the things that COVID, the, the presents that COVID gave us, how do we help those to be presents that keep on giving, <laughs> I guess you could exactly say. Right, yeah. And so Jeremy, what about for you at the, the health and fitness center? I know you've got some exciting things going on at the health and fitness center outside of a daycare. Oh yeah. I, I think that in the, in the health and fitness specific, specifically the uh, medical fitness industry that we've, we've seen two big concerns from members and that's how are you going to keep me safe? Uh, from a cleaning and sanitizing standpoint, and am I going to get the same benefits from exercise or, or out of my membership that I did pre-COVID? And uh, I think one of those, the challenges that a lot of fitness centers uh, are experiencing or dealing with are space challenges. Uh, all the guidelines in place right now are in re regards to distancing, and when you're limited with space, it creates challenges. You've either got to put equipment out of order uh, or find ways to spread people out. And we have the benefit of space. And so what we've been able to do is kind of step back from a broad scale and look at 
look at our, our space utilization in the health and fitness center and figure out how can we repurpose the space that we have. You know, right now we've got a lot of equipment on the track and on our turf that's rendered those areas pretty much unusable. And then there's some equipment that we just can't have in service due to space limitations. So what we've decided we're, we're going to do, we have some plans to restructure the health and fitness center and uh, take some of our low utilization areas and repurpose those and expand our equipment uh, where we can have more permanent distancing of equipment. So we don't have equipment out of order. Our member capacity is not reduced. Uh, and then the other big thing that we're doing is uh, investing in some broad scale sanitizing technology. Uh, the days of wiping down your equipment are not enough anymore. Uh, and, and we also want to be able to, to clean and sanitize efficiently and economically. Uh, so we, we can't stock gallons and gallons of cleaning solution and we can't pay people extra to, to walk around and wipe, you know, wipe equipment down after everyone's been on a piece of equipment. So in addition to, to almost tripling the number of cleaning stations that we have in the facility, we're investing in some broad scale sanitizing technology that will clean not only the air, but surfaces in the facility too. And that's always working. And that goes a long way to help our members know that we're committed to keeping them healthy and safe. So we want to be the beacon, the home for health and fitness in the community. And, and we feel we can be that with, the, with these changes. And so, Mr. Gibbs, um, for you, as you continue to manage multiple construction pro projects across the health system, but also, you know, manage the, the facility side and the nutritional services side and the support services side um, as we learn to operate in this new normal, what, what's next for, for your areas and what kind of lies ahead? Um, the one thing that I learned is how good the team really is. Um, Conway Regional did not have an issue with PPE. We were, we, we conserved, um, but we had stockpile that, and we were ready. Um, so, you know, James Davidson and materials management, Eric Kinsfather, you know, as far as the emergency prep, they've done an excellent job over many years prior. Um, so I think that's going to be our biggest challenge moving forward is we need to replenish that and it's, and it's still very difficult to obtain PPE. So um, that's one program that we're working on is to get our stockpiles back up because this could hit us again, it could be worse next year, um, and we always have to be prepared. Um, I also, um, from a facility side, um, I think we're better prepared if anything happens in the future because um, I don't think it was 16 hours or 48 hours. I think it was like eight hours. We converted the entire unit. We're not competitive <laughs> so, at all oh at gosh, Conway Regional. That, yeah. um, our facility staff converted uh, regular patient rooms into CCU rooms. Um, they did 26 of them in a matter of days. And so... Eight hours. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so... Um, I think we've, we've set ourselves up well from a facility side. If this happens again or if it gets crazy again, we um, have a, a plan to react um, and just, just learn that everybody um, really does a really good job here for a reason. I do want to comment on one thing that was said earlier about you asked Mr. Troop um, about how did you inspire people. Um, that could not have happened without being that leader three years prior. You, 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 you gain that respect and um, you, you earn that over time. So whenever this does happen, people listen, people react. Uh, you've already inspired people and now everybody uh, join our arms and move forward. So that was one thing that I noticed on that comment that that, that doesn't happen because of an event. It happens over a period of time. 
I think that's, that's really well said. And and I'll just um, offer up additional kudos to you and your areas. Jeremy mentioned one thing at the Health and Fitness Center, you know, how do we continue to keep people safe? And I think that that's something just as an employee at Coney Regional, I, I know is happening in our nutritional services area. I know that, um, that that area is safe and that is a safe place to go to, to get fuel, right? Yeah. Um, so, and, and there's been a lot of work that has gone into that. So, so kudos to, to you all and, and your continued focus there. And so, Julia, as we turn to you and we think about telehealth, we know that the possibilities are endless and limitless here. And so, in your mind, kind of what, what lies ahead from, a, from your practice and from a telehealth standpoint? In my current practice at Ida Burns and, and from a telehealth standpoint, uh, moving forward, it's just what I've learned over these past six months, taking that experience and knowledge and being able to be a resource to our community, the, the public schools, the children, their parents, prevent exposures, you know, just serve as their support system. And, and I love that you call it a resource. I know just, in fact, yesterday I had leaned on you to do some education for a leadership group on the benefits of telehealth and why it can, how and why it can be used. And so I think it's so important, um, not only that we continue to offer that, but you, um, with all of your experience serving as a, as a resource um, and a and a, a person who's educating others on, on how telehealth can really um, continue to help us meet our health needs. It truly can. Um, like I say, I think it's been instrumental in helping us with COVID overcome the barriers to getting them uh, the care that they need or getting a test. And then at the same time, though, you're able to educate them on what they need to be doing Yeah, in a face-to-face visit. And convenient for the patient and, and uh, hopefully for the provider. And so, Mr. Troop, as we think about it from an organizational and health system standpoint, you know, what are, what are things you learned? What lies ahead? What, what's next? Oh, man, so much. I, I think I have said this several times. I think um, people will look back on COVID-19 five, ten years from now and, and point to it as the advent of uh, telemedicine. I, I really do think that this is uh, here to stay. As Billy said, it had been something we had talked about for a long time. But for those that may not be in the healthcare field, that becomes very complicated because you get physicians, frankly, that have been trained a certain way and have a certain uh, thought or mindset around how healthcare is administered and how people are cared for. And telemedicine just totally disrupts that. And so it, it took a pandemic really to throw us into it and to rediscover, as Julia points out, you know, the real blessings that we can extend through, through uh, telemedicine. You know, there's so many things that I, I'm, I'm anxious to see in the future uh, of, of how our industry and, and our vocation will be impacted. Um, in some sense, I'm, I'm anxious to see that. In some sense, I'm, I'm not, because I think uh, we get to see what's best about healthcare today. Uh, a pandemic without a good story, a pandemic without um, some sort of higher purpose or calling is really just death. I mean, that's, that's all it is. It's just uh, as... The author of uh, Ecclesiastes says, uh, "That's just you know pursuing the wind. That's that's vanity of vanities. It's uh, really really nothing." And I think what we've been able to do through a great team and a great group of ladies and gentlemen have come together uh, to to tell a different story, and that is such a 
an awesome, awesome, uh, rewarding thing to, to see. I think I've seen my own um, interest in my own career and, and sort of grounding uh, even, even improve as we've gone through this. And so I think you'll continue to see that. I think you'll continue to see uh, organizations focus on the broader mission, not just on the acute stage of illness, but really how can we be better community partners? We've talked about some of that already. I think you'll, you'll continue to see us collaborate with other employers in the area, figure out how we can extend community health uh, more proactively and, and integratively. And telemedicine becomes a great tool for that. Uh, I think you'll see uh, hospitals and providers working more closely together. Um, you'll see us in this position of, yes, it can happen again. Um, disasters do and can happen. They're not always in the form of a tornado, like we oftentimes plan, but you've got to be able to be nimble and adaptable. And I think, you know, most of all, what I've been most impressed with is people's ability when we take a lot of the, the rules off the table, uh, guidelines, as Jeremy called it earlier, when we let people operate with guidelines, when we empower them and give them backing, it is incredible what they can do. I mean, it's just mind-blowing to think back uh, to, to March, opening up a unit, what Brian said, uh, with, with eight hours' notice, getting air and uh, medical air and gas in there, making it negative pressure, all in the span of, of eight hours to take care of, of COVID patients is just, you know, mind-blowing. Mind getting a daycare up and running in 16 hours and getting it licensed shortly thereafter is just mind-blowing. Um, it took Billy 48 hours, but, you know, uh, <laughs> he'll do better. <laughs> uh, getting a drive through testing site open, staffed, um, you know, all the things that we did, it's, it's incredible to see what a team could do, and it's, it's really refreshing. We have a lot going on at Conway Regional, as does any hospital, but, um, and we can be very frustrated sometimes by, by the length of time things take, um, and what we see in, in COVID is that when we put our mind to it and when we, you know, uh, give people the power and the ability to, to do it, man, they can do some really incredible things. So that is all for today's episode. I want to thank Mr. Troop for getting a little uncomfortable and shifting his role from this inter was fun. from from interviewer to interviewee and allowing me to be the facilitator of today's conversation. And um, for those listening, he's he was really uncomfortable with this. I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is fun. This is great. So with that, Mr. Troop, I will pass it back to you um, to wrap up today's episode. All right. You know, if I had access to that applause button that uh, Mr. Bradley won't let me touch, is, it, is which one is it? I forget. Be careful. Which anyway, one <laughs> I would do a, a great round of applause for, for Rebecca and uh, uh, leading the conversation, uh, guiding this. This has uh, been awesome. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you all for being here, most, most importantly, and getting a little uncomfortable. It's a little uncomfortable talking in front of a mic. You know, we in healthcare, we don't, this is it, isn't what we do. Uh, but appreciate uh, your willingness to, to bear with us and, and tell our story. So thank you guys again for listening and tune in soon for our next edition of our One Team, One Promise podcast. <laughs>